Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Mark. How are you today this week, Mark? I'm very well. When's this good friend showing up? I don't know. I didn't know we were recording with three people this week. Oh, sorry. Awkward. (laughs) So, as per always, we're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter and our feature game this week, which is Undaunted Battle of Britain. And then I, I know we don't normally acknowledge its existence at the beginning of the show, typically, but a long overdue masterpiece theater. Ooh, that is exciting. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we played The Defense of Procyon 3. I think it's pronounced Procyon, but I'm not 100% Percyon, sure. Procyon. Procyon. I, I went through several videos. Uh-huh. It was Procyon. Okay. It was it was Percyon. Uh-huh. It was, All you, over the place? You take a pick, they pronounce it a certain way. Wild. This is designed by David Turtsey and published by PSC Games, and it has a very interesting sort of system. It is troops on a map. So when you play troops on a map, you do damage. And so you can just take a look at a game, and there are a plethora of ways to do damage. So why does it always have to be the same way? We have four different sides of the battle, one in space, so two sides in space, two sides on land, and they're all trying to do damage in a certain way. And therefore... They're playing completely different card-type games. One is using a bit of dice. One is using a bag-building system with cards. One is doing, you know, sort of deck-building, I guess, in a way. And it all sort of mingles together in this very interesting sort of humans defending against the onslaught of aliens. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that the aliens are the forces of truth, righteousness, and goodness in this particular game. So the Defense of Procyon 3, I think the natural and inevitable comparison class is Root. You know, heavily asymmetric, troops on a map game. And to a large extent, the legacy of Root and the shadow of Root looms large across a lot of these heavily asymmetric games. We talked about the same thing in the context of Circadian's Chaos Order. And I think it's in the context of, of, of a lot of different ty- genre of design. Even games like Merchant's Cove that don't have a troops on a map element, you know, the legacy looms large. And so here we are on a troops on a map game that is heavily asymmetric. And I think the reason why I really like Root and I really don't like the defense of Procyon 3 can be summed up in actually the way you introduce it. Because you're right. All four factions inflict and take damage in different ways. And the way that Root does it, for example, is there's enough commonality amongst factions that at the start of the game you can explain, look, here's how fights work. The trick is, is that different factions start fights in different ways. You might not have a great sense of how your opponent can start a fight, but once the fight happens, you know what's going to happen. 
I have read all five rules documents of Defense of Procyon 3. Not recently. Though I, I only reread the one for my own faction recently. And I was still trying to remember how my direct opponent, namely the one across from me in the ground battle, you, inflicted damage. And as a consequence, I never really had a good sense about what you could do on your turn at all. And it was that level of opacity that made a lot of the play feel random. Like, I would take my turn, and then there would be considerable downtime. And during that downtime, arbitrary things would happen, and I would have no conception about what any of it really meant at the end of the day. Like, I never knew when your turn was done, because well, I just didn't know how your... Uh, like, there's, a, there's, a, there's a term, the first game, and I think this, is sure. a, this game defines that 100%. Sure. There is no way, because like you said, in route. Fights happen in the exact same, you know, for everyone. It's, you know, you roll the dice and you're going to do damage. This, you have no, there's no defense. There's no way to stop damage. Yes. So, like I said, you just have to, you know, inflict it and then in the way you do. And then the next player takes their turn. Well, it, it's tricky. I don't even know if, if I would agree with that characterization. Let's just take one example again, focusing on the ground battle, because that's the one where I was focusing my most of my attention. There are these scientists who are non-combatants. And your faction desperately wanted to protect them, get them off world. And my faction def desperately wanted to murder them. In theory, they have to be the last target that takes damage in the defense of Procyon 3. So I have to murder all the other units, and only then can I go after the scientists. Except, then there were a bunch of effectively take that effects where I could start fights and target scientists first, or move units out in such a way that the scientists could become vulnerable. And it's not even just that there's no way to defend on your turn. It feels like in a very serious way, there's no way to defend at all, period. Not just like while the opponent's taking their turn, you have to take whatever they're giving you, but you can set up whatever defense you want. And there's some degree of nonsense. So not only do you need, in order for the defense of Procyon 3 to be played I, remotely, I would say, quote unquote, properly, not only do you need to internalize at the very least all the systems of your faction and all the systems of the one directly opposed to you, you probably also have to good, have a good sense of what's in their weird deck of tricks. Yeah, they almost like set it up, at least for the human player. I didn't see too much of the other battles. They almost set up, they give you all these objectives and all these strategy, strategies you could employ, like have troops with the scientists so they can't be targeted. Right. Target their queen because you get a lot of points. Uh, you know, set up uh, all these... Uh, barriers with your troops because they take uh not sustained damage but suppressive damage but then they give the aliens all these cards that just completely bypass all of those things yeah. so you sort of wonder well what am i doing on my turn then? <laughs> yes I, I felt very sympathetic to you i felt very sympathetic to me uh because naturally i'm always sympathetic to me but also just the deluge of nonsense in terms of the way combat resolution works four different combat resolution mechanisms i think uh, there, there are two that are more arbitrary than the others, namely mine and the space humans. So the space humans and the ground aliens have very arbitrary damage-dealing uh, mechanisms. And you had ways to manipulate that with greater ease than I did, certainly at the beginning of the game. And that was feeling frustrating. There was one turn, normally on, on the, the, the ground aliens' turn, they get to play three cards from a hand of four. One turn I started with a hand of one card, and that's all I could do. Now, mind you, it was a particularly unsatisfying turn for everybody, because with that one card, my nearly dead queen showed up at full health, and I scored four points. So... <laughs> I, ultimately, it left me feeling like it was an overall arbitrary experience, and I'm not sure that repeated play would significantly mitigate that, especially when, again, 
I look at a system like Root, which has greater transparency, greater flexibility, uh, also kind of greater thematic coherence from the broader lens of sort of uh, impressionistic takes on counterinsurgency. Uh, ultimately, I thought that Defense of Procyon 3 was an interesting experiment, and I'm glad you found it intriguing, but I, I mostly found it frustrating. Well, I definitely want to give it a try. Uh, Huey, Huey kind of liked it, so we're going to try it. There's a cooperative mode, cooperative slash uh, solo mode, so you can both play, you know, the sides and then the, a deck. Because I think he, I think uh, he got someone else to do a solo. David Cersei doesn't know anything about solo modes. No, he so, must have found uh, someone else. He who probably got someone else. To yeah, make this deck of David Cersei hates solo modes. He yeah. never, he never. So we'll see how that how that runs out. I will point out that in the context of the main rulebook, so there's about a hundred pages worth of documentation. In I'm wondering what's the, in the rulebook because I I pretty got all the rules down from just my faction rulebook. Right. So in the main sort of core rulebook, there's basically about two to four pages of setting the scene and trying to have the owner of the game understand what's in front of them. And then the rest of the book is the solo rules and the solo slash cooperative rules are under the heading last resort. <laughs> Which I think is telling. When David Tertze, he of all the solo modes is telling you, he's like, yeah, you can play it solo and co-op, but uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't recommend it. I think that's telling. Um, look, ultimately, I found, when, when I play Root, I find the asymmetry interesting. Even when I played Burton's Cove, which I didn't quite enjoy, I found the asymmetry interesting. Same thing with Circadian's Chaos Order. Here I found the asymmetry frustrating, because again, I just never knew what someone had to do, what, what someone had, where to go. Fin as a final note, uh, there were some interesting bits of cooperation between the two partners, things that were difficult for you to do and not necessarily part of your core objectives, but would make your partner's life easier. I wish there had been more of that. If you're going to design a game like the Defense of Procyon 3, where it's fixed factions, you only play with four, you only have these dynamics, I want the different factions to have interesting interactions with each other. It reminded me a little bit of my frustration with coin games. Coin games set up these historical scenarios where there were historical factions that were inclined to work together and or be opposed at various interesting uh, stress points. But most of the coin games just were down to a four-player free-for-all, and you don't see those 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 dynamics work out in a very satisfying way. Again, like the, the setting's interesting. I find the, the the theme interesting. I always prefer sci-fi over fantasy, uh, but ultimately, I felt the defense of Procyon Three was was an interesting concept, not terribly well executed, or perhaps an interesting question that didn't need to be answered. Yeah, and we set up sort of like a homework type deal. We told everyone we're going to play this game a day. We sent everyone home with the books and said, "Be ready." And I, I just can't see bringing this to a game night or even having people show up and out of nowhere saying, hey, we're going to play this game and then, you know, start teaching it from nothing. Yeah. That would seems impossible. Yeah, again, even just the fiddly little corner cases of how is damage allocated. In the ground game, there are three different ways that damage can be allocated before you start factoring in special powers and weird effects from card-driven effects. So again... Can you find three different ways to assign damage to the same sets of units? Yeah. Could you? Should you? Maybe not. Same thing with the cards. Can you find four different ways for a Troops on a Map game to be card-driven? Yeah, and, and W. Tsurte did it, and that's kind of interesting in the abstract. But in practice, it just didn't really redound to the game's benefit. I am curious to see how the co-op mode works, though, to be frank. And that is The Defense of Perseon 3 by David Tertzi and PSC Games. Do you know what the defense of Procyon 3 is not? What is it not? It's not a hat. It's not a hat. It's not a hat. Damn it. it is <laughs> that explains the strange looks I got at the gala. <laughs> so, we played more games of That's Not a Hat. We played it 
some more with four players as we had before. And with four players, I had this interesting experience about halfway through the game. If you, for maybe five seconds, forget about the state of play, you're done. That's just it. You can't get back in, which is a strange state for a game of, of, of that's weight. It's not like these memory elements will get re-exposed to you over a course of time. Your only hope is that everyone else eats it as bad as you're about to for long enough that you can get back to top decking and then you can get back in the game because it's possible with just the cards on the table. Forget it for one second, like the character from Memento, and that's it. You're gone. It's not going to happen. We also played with five. I think I was not expecting to prefer it with five than with four, but I did. I did prefer it with five because it became more about the bluffing. It became more about communicating confidence and trying to pare down the game state into manageable chunks of information. And so rather than with four players, I felt the temptation to, to know what all the cards were at all times. With five, I'm like, okay, all I need to do is try to figure out who's lost the plot and to try to track which cards are coming to me next and try to infer based on A, my memory, and B, my perception about how weak those players are, whether or not I need to call them on any bluffs. It's like there was a snowman. <laughs> and no one's, no one said snowman for a while. Yeah. That means I might have one. <laughs> so... The, the moment This of, is a snowman. <laughs> with all of that said, the panic that I often have is like, all right, that card's going to come to me. I know what it is. That card's going to come to me in two turns. I know what it is. And then I look down in front of me and like, oh... What card do I have? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, because it does something very interesting. Like, I don't want to say they're tricks, but there are little hints. There are, on the backs of the cards, you're either going to per- pass them to the left or to the right, and some are either pink or white. So sometimes there's little hints. 100%. Right? You say, oh, the snowman's a white card. But then suddenly, you know, two more white Another cards. Another white card shows up in your house. And, and you're, oh, you're like, oh, but, but, yeah, it's such a good game. That's Not a Hat is an example of one of those extremely minimalistic designs that managed to pull off considerable interactions of both memory dynamics and social dynamics. And again, those social dynamics come to form more with five. Six might be too far. Six might be utter madness. At that point, maybe no one can really track anything. I don't know. I'd be interested in trying. I would have said the same thing about five. I thoroughly enjoyed it with four, but the dynamics were different with five and I preferred them. And it's just so incredibly disarmingly simple. I can't go back to the way I was before when I first heard the rules of the game and Huey and I were like, there's no game here. This, this, what? Okay, I guess we'll give it a try. And then about three turns, <laughs> and we're like, wait, what? Where's the toaster? <laughs> so good. It's it's really well done. Casper Lap is a thoroughly, thoroughly interesting designer in terms of his previously published works, and I'm very much looking forward to, again, seeing this with other players. I, I even want to try it with three. I'd like to see how that works. Again, who knows? It, it's Well, look, it's one of those designs that's so simple, you can't actually parse out the results Based on player dynamics. Like I, I said, I'm curious. I think I looked I think three is the minimum. I believe three is the minimum. With two, I don't think the game would really work. Oh, no, I definitely was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. True. So why am I even looking it up? So that is Not a Hat by Casper Lap, published by Ravensburger this year. Shockingly good game of memory. Definitely the best game of memory that I've ever played. And shockingly interesting bluffing dynamics the more players get into it. Highly recommended. We got to play Beyond the Sun specifically with the leaders of the New Dawn expansion. This is designed by Dennis K. Chan, but he came in with Joseph Suma for the expansion. As a reminder, Dennis K. Chan was a social acquaintance of mine back when I lived in Boston. I once had to tersely explain to him that, yes, there was such a thing as American cuisine. And once again, I defy anyone to produce more specific or more detailed disclosures than the ones you find here at So Very Wrong About Games. So true. 
And this is put out by Real Grand Games. So what the gist of the expansion is new faction boards, more technologies, more interesting things. I don't think I was not enjoying Beyond the Sun. Like this game I was enjoying, but I mean like after the fact, like even when it first came out, really, I was sort of meh. We played it a bunch of times on, on board game arena. It's like, it's very interesting. I can, I, I get why people enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can, but I really enjoyed this particular game. The way my special ability, the, what are they? The technologies, the things we drafted at the beginning. The two those abilities. are the, those are the leaders. Those are the eponymous leaders. Yeah, the, of the leaders. Dawn. The leaders throw so much into it. That, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I very much enjoyed it. Just a question: Do you think you could you could characterize your misgivings about the base game? Why? Do you have a sense about just, why it didn't grab you just, the way it grabbed other people? I did the first couple of plays. I think it was just starting to get samey. It was just like, okay, really? here we go again. You okay. know, you know, going. You know, I get this. You know, I move on the planet. I you know, back okay. and forth getting or and getting people and then getting this, you know, just cycling out the technologies. It just seemed, hmm. seemed boring after a while. Really? The first few gameplays were great, but then after that, it was losing its luster for sure. Hmm. I, I feel the exact opposite for what it's worth. I don't regret having the expansion, but I've commented on this before. I think the expansion's a couple of years too late. It was announced a, uh, several, several years ago, and solo, solo variants were highly in demand during the peak of the pandemic. And I think had it come out then, I would have been all over the solo variant, played it all the time. Especially before the board game read adaptation came out. As it is, what you get with the expansion is a comparatively small number of new technologies. The overwhelming preponderance of technologies in the deck are going to be base game technologies, which is fine. I didn't, unlike you, I didn't feel like the game was getting repetitive because the available array of technologies that a given player would have access to over the course of the game would be radically different from one game to the next. Yeah, you'd see the same technology show up again, but generally speaking, you wouldn't necessarily have the same set personally available to you as you, as you would from game to game. So I, I didn't feel like that part was getting repetitive, and I felt the production strains the necessity of getting out more population, the necessity of managing your ore, that didn't feel repetitive to me. I really like how production works in Beyond the Sun. The leaders, on the other hand, which again, I was very much looking forward to in the expansion, I feel don't really add much to the game. In point of fact, over the course of our game of, of Beyond the Sun, I didn't use one of my leaders at all. It was it was an ability I should have. In fr in fr honestly, it was just a misplay on my part. In theory, it's a cool ability. Twice per game, you can immediately activate a new technology that you research. It's kind of sort of a free turn, but without the without the benefit of additional production. I ought to have done it, but I didn't use it at all. And at the end of the game, my score was fine. So, again, that, that I think is an indication about how ancillary the leaders are. They provide very, very subtle effects, and I, I was looking for a little bit more. Again, maybe it's just that I'm a child of root, and I want everything to be radically asymmetrical. I just... I find the techs vastly more interesting than the leaders. And so the fact that it didn't really add a whole bunch of techs is a bit disappointing. But then again, as I've said before, despite the fact that I'm d disappointed by the leaders of a New Dawn expansion, it just goes to show how pleased I am with the base game of Beyond the Sun that the expansion can be so disappointing and yet I'd still happily play it any time. Yeah, it could be just a balance thing, too. They didn't want to make them too powerful because the such array of different technologies, might oh, sure. one might bounce off of one a little too hard. Oh, absolutely. I, I respect the desire to be conservative with altering the technology mix. And besides, there's a relatively circumscribed universe of effects that occur in Beyond the Sun. And there's only so many permutations that you can have for the technologies. I don't really, I, I wouldn't want them to start going hog wild on new, tech, on new technologies. But as I say, I 
it's it's one of those expansions that I was very much looking forward to, but I think it's a little bit too late and a little bit too little. But I'm glad that it's rejuvenated your interest in Beyond the Sun. That's great, because it's definitely a favorite locally and a very... Very approachable, all things considered, despite the fact that it's literally a spreadsheet of new technologies in terms of the main board. It's very approachable in terms of rules load. And I think that like a lot of really well-designed Euros, it gets a lot of mileage out of that circumscribed universe of effects. So I'm glad that you'll be more enthusiastic about future planes. That's Beyond the Sun, specifically Leaders of a New Dawn. Played another game of Thunder Road Vendetta. This is by Dave Charkers, Brett Myers, Noah Cohen, Rob Davio, Justin D. Jacobson, Jim Kafer, and Brian Neff. The whole crew. Well, it's it's definitely the crew. Family. Family. It's about family. <sighs> Thunder Road Vendetta is, as far as I'm concerned, almost but not there. It's too long for how arbitrary it is. It's too arbitrary for how involved it is. And ultimately, I would rather just play a dice game. I don't object to the fact that there are wild swings of fortune and people can get destroyed arbitrarily. That's the fun of the game. You know, it definitely captures some of the chaotic joy that you would experience in Gaslands. The Gaslands and Thunder Road are radically different games, but they nonetheless have the same theme of sort of post-apocalyptic combat racing, and they both do have this joy and mayhem. And they absolutely have the right level of mayhem. Things go bad in Thunder Road real quick, and you can't win unless you drive dangerously. The trick is, though, that's where things start to get really arbitrary. And furthermore, it really leans into problems in a lot of multiplayer conflict games. So it's a race. The person who wins Thunder Road is going to be the one who crosses the finish line first. And the finish line materializes once someone has been eliminated from the game. So, yes, there's player elimination, but that triggers the end game, so it's okay. But here's the problem. Here's the dynamic. Say you're playing a four-player game and someone's in the lead. So there are a lot of things... You can do to harass whoever is in the lead. You can ram them. You can shoot them. You can send helicopters raining on fire from the sky. All manner of things. And they're naturally going to be the target. Eventually, they're going to die. The, the car in the lead can only take so many hits. They're very fragile as a rule, which is good. The, 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 the level of vulnerability is well calibrated. So then the person in second place is now doing real well. How close to the end of the game were you? <laughs> right? Yes. Are they going to be the ones now to win? Are they now the, the new target? So if you're in the lead, you have to hope that three players throwing fire at you isn't going to be enough. Or if it is going to be enough, you have enough time to make sure that your other vehicle can then overtake a new pack of lead. Anyway, so it's got a lot of the A versus B and C wins co uh, conflict problems. And the the last game that we played, the only reason why the person who was in the lead at the mid game ended up winning was through truly spectacular luck. We're talking about a series of around half a dozen missed attacks in a row, which is I, I can't bother crunching the numbers, but we're talking very remote possibilities in terms of this happening. But had any of those attacks worked, then the person who'd just been in second place the entire time would have won. Eh. I don't really mind that dynamic too much in a 45-minute game, but Thunder Road is more like 75 to 90 minutes, and so it's just a little bit further than like... At that point, I'd much rather play something like a dice game where it's just over quickly and not a whole lot of setup, or if I'm going to do something more involved, I'd even rather play something like... Tiny turbo cars. That, I think, has a much better approach to damage in terms of, you know, keeping the leader behind and yet not having the ability for everybody to whack the leader more or less indiscriminately. And so when it comes to racing with mayhem involved, Gaslands and Tiny Turbo Cars, I think, are vastly superior alternatives. 
And ultimately, the, the the key problems of Thunder Road, I don't think, can be solved by fiddling around the edges with some of the Kickstarter exclusives and materials like that. It's, so some of the expansions are available. Do you, do you feel like picking any of them up, like the giant truck and the motorcycles? And Again, I mean, those strike me as potentially interesting, but then what you're doing is you're adding more rules grit to something that's already a little bit longer than it wants to be anyway, right? I mean, the, the core elements of Thunder Road are so fundamentally arbitrary in terms of, oh, I, I got a damage. Oh, my one damage meant I got flying four spaces in a random direction. I guess I'm dead. Okay. Wait, again, this is fine. But the, the longer the game goes, the more rules you introduce, the less I'm okay with wild swings of fate like that. And I want something that either smooths out the damage experience or allows you some degree of mitigation. Something that both Tiny Turbo Cars and Gaslands manage to do. And for what it's worth, most other racing games do as well. Whether it's your Rallyman's or Rally's Man, how would you pr- uh, pluralize it anyway? Or even Formula Day. Like, quite frankly, when it comes, the fact that it boils down to sheer racing, racing plus combat without any attempt at mitigation of the A and B fight C wins problem, mmm. Leaves me a little cold. So if the game were half as long, I'd, I'd be all over Thunder Road. I think it'd be great. If it didn't have those unfortunate dynamics, I'd, I'd be able to get in the fun more than that. But again, if you're going to go to 75 or 90 minutes, I want there to be some degree of substance, some degree of room for clever play, rather than just a bash the leader fest and hoping to be in the lead at the precise right moment at the game ending. I mean, I'm not disappointed with my plays of Thunder Road Vendetta. I just don't see it having legs. The toys are nice. The toys are indeed nice. But then again, so, so are the toys in Gaslands. You can go to your favorite miniatures game store, your dollar store, pick up some new miniatures terrain, like some rocks, pick up some new fully painted units for a buck twenty-five. That's true. Anyway. <laughs> so that's Thunder Road Vendetta by a large number of people. Restoration Games published this year. We got, I got. The group got Sherlock Holmes Baker Street Irregulars back. And it's sort of, if you play exit games, you just want more of a story. So this is just more of a a graphic novel puzzle exit type game. You're, you go through the different streets following leads, and then they throw these wacky puzzles at you. Very interesting. I would definitely recommend it to people who like that type of game. So this was the second scenario that you played? No, we went back and we played the third. We I did, see. We did two the first time, and we went back to the third one. This time, we didn't even get all the way through it, practically right to the end. Lots of different visual cue, uh, uh, clues and, and puzzles and uh, uh, physical stuff that you had to like communicate back and forth with. Cool stuff. How long was the scenario overall? Like, Had it gone to completion, how long would the session have been? Uh, about an hour, I think. I see. They get, they get more complicated as you go along. The first two were quick and fairly simple, and this one, I thought an hour would be enough, and we did not have enough time. I see. What was your character's gimmick? I, I'm the big burly guy, so I could... No, I meant in the game. You were playing a game? What was your... Yeah, what was the, I, I in, got in to, the game? I smash stuff. No, I, Walker, it, Walker I, don't think you, I don't think you're listening to me. In the right. game, what was... <laughs> and and they use it the same uh, Crusoe crew, same sort of thing. So we had this cabinet, and one of the one of the panels was a bit loose, and so I only I was the only one that had a page number there. So mm. I go to my page number, and my fist goes right through this panel. <laughs> I see it's it's very very clever and interesting, and I think some kids would get a, a real kick out of it. But oh, a little bit older. Though some of those clues were getting a little a little funky. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. It sounds charming. I'm a little bit concerned about the lack of replay value and the fact there's only four scenarios, but when and if the fourth scenario hits the table, I'd be happy to join you. And that is Sherlock Holmes Baker Street Irregulars. Just as a minor note, it's a shame that 
all the Sherlock Holmes games have basically interchangeable titles. <laughs> there been a, any game with Sherlock Holmes as a theme, you know, short of Mystery Rummy, which at least has Mystery Rummy in the title. <laughs> Just like every time Sherlock Holmes like reboots somewhere, it's always Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskerville. Every oh, yeah. single time. <laughs> Played another game of It's a Wonderful World. The the one of the campaigns of It's a Wonderful World finally hit retail, and that reminded me that I've got all these campaigns from the Kickstarter Heritage Box that we haven't played. And I initially wanted to pull out one of the campaigns just to see what it was like. Not that I want to necessarily finish a campaign, but then having played the game without any of the campaigns and with the small box expansion called World Corruption and Ascension. And that is why Walker is a professional. I was reminded that how good It's a Wonderful World is, and perhaps whipping out a campaign would be enough reason to remind us that we should just play more of the thing, <laughs> because it's a very quick game. It's got lots of short-term versus long-term and timing trade-offs that you only see in much heavier, much longer Euros, and the art is aggressively delightful. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can do a relatively generic drafting game. And indeed, the theming of one of our other favorite drafting games, Fairy Tale, is pretty generic. You know, I'm drafting this elf warrior and this dwarf and this what, it's like, whatever. It's fine. We love it for gameplay. The art is vaguely appealing, but, you know, conceptually it's not nice. On the other hand, when it comes to It's a Wonderful World, you can establish a saucer squadron. And you can invent time travel and find the Ark of the Covenant and all manner of... Interesting little tableaus nope, that are very... the game's over. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's well. That's just it. The tense trade-offs hit you right in the face at the start. Every round you're going to draft seven cards, and all you can do with those cards is ditch them for one cube or try to build them. And so it's a it's a challenge every time you put out a card to build it. You know you're giving up some opportunity cost, and you don't know if you're going to be able to finish it all. Meanwhile, you've got these production demands. And they're, they're kind of benefits, but they're also demands, because if, in a wonderful world, you don't have an outlet for your production, it's going to go comparatively to waste. And so, you know, in round one, here I am thinking, oh, I shouldn't have burned that card. In round two, thinking, why didn't I get anything that can use yellow? And again, these are the kinds of serious production challenges that you often find in those 90 to two hour, 90 minute to two hour euros. But here it's in a much more physically appealing package with a much lower rules overhead. And it's going to last about 45 to 60 minutes. So uh, every time I pull out, it's a wonderful world. I wonder why I don't play it more often. I can only agree. Find, find your sort of strategy and, and start getting those cards out because it lasts four rounds and then the game is done. Yes. There isn't much room to pivot as a general rule. Uh, but you know, again, given its length, that's not a, a huge problem. And I would, I would prefer it if there were a little bit more level of hate drafting in the, in the last game we were playing, my production demands and my end game goals were so firmly delineated that I had no opportunity to so much as glance at somebody else's tableau in past games. I have been able to glance, look at how much they're producing and figure, Oh, they're drowning in yellow production. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hate draft this card that wants yellow cubes. Sometimes you get to that level, but then again, sometimes you're just as Walker would say, heads down, just focusing on your own production demands. And I saw something in this game of it's a wonderful world that I'd never seen before. I didn't draft a single gray card. I didn't produce a single gray cube. It was mostly just black and green and blue all day long. And that was interesting. It was it was an economy that I had not yet seen heretofore. 
Yeah, I love you. you all, everyone gets a little asymmetric power card and sort of directs you in a, in a way to go off the beginning, which I kind of like. You also observe once again how well integrated the expansion is with the base game. Yes, because unlike other games where they just say throw in all the cards and maybe you'll get some expansion cards, maybe not, probably not. This one, they does it separate. So you, you deal out the six to everyone and then two expansion cards to everyone. So that way everyone always gets a mix of the expansion. And it's simple. When you draft, you just take whatever you want and pass whatever you want. End up with all expansion cards or no expansion cards. Who cares? <laughs> Such a great game. It's a Wonderful World by Frédéric Gérard and published by La Boîte de Jeux. So yeah, gotta gotta try one of those campaigns just to see. I just want to see how they play with the the, the role structures, yeah, what they did with it. Yeah, we streamed Icky this week. It is designed by Kuta Yamada and put out by Sorry We Are French, and this was up for an award. This, <laughs> I love this, that this year every time. Yep. Yet yet I feel though this I had this game for several years. It it won an award this year. They are at the second printing of the second edition. I have the first printing of the second edition. Very colorful, great pictures, uh, fun occupations for all the people that you're going to put in, put in the store into the stalls. Crazy fire, uh, <laughs> and it was it was fun because Worm Boy and Sidewinder had not played it before. Uh, Worm Boy had a lot of trouble. A lot uh, there was a little starvation. But it was okay because it didn't last long. They were burned to death soon after that. Did he consider eggs? Maybe that was the problem. Yeah. He was an egg seller and maybe he just refused to go there and feed his people. I, maybe that was the problem. When In times of crisis, consider eggs. Eggs. So yes. So has this very interesting sort of initiative system at the beginning of every round. You're deciding where in turn order you're going and how far you're going to move. And it's a very interesting sort of playoff. Do you want to get to that fish before anyone else can? So you want to go near it, but you might not make it. So you have to pay some sandals to get there. All sorts of different things you can do. There are these very powerful, you know, buildings that you can build off to the side, but that means you have to dedicate one of your workers there of the only four that you're allowed to have out on the stall. When other people uh, go to your stalls, your people upgrade and you have this neat economy you know, developing in front of you, icky, love every game I play. So fire was uh, a bigger issue this game than it has been in some of the recent ones? Well, for Warm Boy it was. Not for us. Yeah, his people were quite warm. Because <laughs> it's strange, fire seems to go that way. I remember of my plays of icky, it's either the, the case that it doesn't really amount to much, or a number of people are just completely burnt to a crisp. I'm hoping there's expansion coming out for very soon, so I hope I'm hoping they mix up the fire a little bit, make it maybe make it a little less random. It's yeah. the only it's the only part of the game that's just completely sort of left. It's so out of place in this game that's very tight. It's true. It's true. I, I wonder even if there could be a successful variant whereby uh, the fire strikes will never strike the same district twice, and then you have a sense of well, you know. That district has already seen the fire. That one, at least, is safe. I don't know. That would probably unbalance the game in other directions. Well, I, sh- I, mean, I should I should stick to my general principle of not suggesting fixes. True, to games. but I mean, like, if if the expansion does things to fix the balance after they've done that right. type, type of thing. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. There's any number of things that clever game designers could do to address this problem. Certainly better than I, I some like, ignorant anyone, anyone but us. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say anyone but me, but <laughs> I also got to play. Mark, have I told you about this game called Nar? Nar, uh, Nar. Can, I, I believe it is Kanar. I'm not sure. I thought the K was not pronounced. I'm ke- I keep I, hearing all these people tell me different things. I know. Maybe okay, I, I don't know. Tell those people to stuff it. Okay, it is spelled K N A R R. So who knows how it's pronounced? 
It is designed by Thomas DuPont, him of Denia fame, and published by Bombix. It's uh, only got to play it on Board Game Arena. It's not yet out. I, I can't seem to get a wine on an actual copy, but hopefully soon it'll be to a physical table. What you're doing is you're drafting these cards into your tableau. There's like five different colors, and you're either putting a new card into one of the row of colors, or you're spending some of those cards to make your big scoring engine bigger. You'll bring over this long ship and it has three different columns. So either you're going to get more victory points or more things. And then every time you accumulate three rings or you don't have to do a a three ring cash in it, you can spend one to three. But like I said, there's three columns on your long ships for the rows you're going to go down. So if you do, you want all three to score because that's action efficiency, Mark, you're not going to waste your time. Sometimes I waste my time Walker. And so that is, is, is not, I don't know how to explain it. It's, I think it's going to be one of my favorite games of this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is really good. Check it out. It's on board game arena. I have a live update from the research gibbons. They've handed me a notice oh, right here. Gotcha. And they say that according to Wikipedia, the K is silent. Ah, so it is in fact, Nar. Those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, a game called Doggerland. So you embody a clan around 15,000 BCE. Your goal is to expand your clan in order to leave a trace of your existence for centuries to come. Doggerland. Doggerland. D-O-G-G-E-R-L-A-N-D. I don't even know her. It's so true. It looks very interesting. I definitely want to give it a try. Doggerland. On the topic of dogs, Walker. Yes, do tell. <laughs> Paolo Mori recently published a designer diary talking about changing ethnos to Archeo Society. You know, you tried Archeo Society. There are indeed rules changes, and it's not just a reskin. And so I'd be interested in giving that a try soon. More to follow. But he mentioned that he is continuing work on a sort of a second edition or reworking of Dogs of War, one of our favorite Paolo Mori designs, and Paolo Mori has designed many games that we enjoy. Dogs of War is great. It needs to be back in print. Agreed. I'm a sucker for nostalgia. Even though Adventure Time's not that old, Adventure Time is going to get their own RPG in a partnership with Cryptozoic and Warner Brothers. Adventure Time, the RPG, will be on Kickstarter this summer. So at this point, Walker, despite the fact that we have issued qualified defenses of Cool Mini or Not in the past, particularly the work of Michael Chennault, I think at this point they're trolling us. Because your most excellent suggestion of Zombabees has, I mean, how many ways, how deep, how far will they look to avoid the inevitability of Zombabees? I don't know. I, I have Apparently never, British I surrealist said, sketch comedy is one of them. Is one of them. Yeah. And so now, now Monty Python is going to be in Zombicide. An obvious match, say, he says quizzically. It wasn't really Zombicide until now, really. Yeah, no when you kidding. Think about it. I, I, I just, I just don't know. Next Happy Days. Sorry, Zombicide. <laughs> oh wow! Where the zombie fawns jumps a zombie shark. Now I kind of want to see it. <laughs> so true, Mark. More fish is always is better fish, right? News for the big box. You you want you want fish? Well, we got fish for you. News for is all about trading the fish. We didn't really like News for it all that much. <laughs> yeah, but this will be everything in one box sure. for those people who enjoy it. And who doesn't like a good big box? <laughs> well, but the expansions were just extra decks of cards. There have been a couple, I believe. And it's just very hard to find. So it's good that they're back in print. I don't know that you need a big box, though. There's tons of room 
in the box because they're very small cars. Much like other Euros, there's all sorts of promo and yeah, extra, you're right. you know, convention bits. I'm sure they'll I all hope be... It's, I just hope it's a big box in the vein of the Hansa Teutonica big box, which is to say not very big. True. And I, and I hope they don't go the way they did with Isle of Sky, where they introduce something that's only in the big box. Yes. That was obnoxious. Absolutely. And I want to know when and if there are going to be any expansions to Hallertau, which is probably our, you know, favorite underrepresented Uwe Rosenberg worker placement game. True. Because it and it's designed around modular card decks in yes. a way that a lot of the other games weren't anyway. So Aristea is one of our favorite two-player skirmishy adjacent games. It claims to be a sports game, and thus I get to claim to be a sportsman. And there have not been any expansions for quite some time, and I actually appreciate that. It's been a stable game set with a large roster of characters for several years, and the support that it has received has been largely through different organized play setups. This is not unusual for the company. The publishing company Corvus Belly has a history of trying to find ways to introduce variety and or rebalancing into their game metas through things that do not require any money. So, for example, very early on when it was the case that it became clear that in Infinity, which is their tabletop miniatures flagship game, that there was a variety of stats like Forward Observer and Specialist Operative and so forth that were over-costed and undervaluable. They thought, well, wait, why don't we make it so that this season's organized play scenarios give some benefit to those units in a way that nobody has to buy new figures, nobody has to buy new books. The way they manage metas tends to be very, very consumer-friendly. And so uh, Bostria, in a video released today, actually, from Corvus Belli, has acknowledged the fact that Aristea may be their favorite rule set, the best rule set that they've ever published, and has not had any expansions for a while. But they are now committing that in some way or in some form, there's going to be more Aristea content going forward. And so there's a lot of speculation what that means. Is this a second edition? Does this mean a new wave of expansions? Does this mean new game modes? And there's been an, a, a bit of concern, actually, specifically in our Discord, about whether or not this is going to invalidate any of the previous Aristea releases. And all that I can say is, I can't commit to this, I don't have any insider information. Are they going to Games Workshop it up? I would be extremely surprised. This would be a, a, a radical departure from the way that Corvus Belli has run its games for arguably, arguably the past 20 years. Which is, again, very consumer-friendly, never making models obsolete, but instead trying to bring underused models into the forefront, not making you repurchase things, and never charging you for rules. So I am very optimistic that whatever they do with Aristea will be consumer-friendly and will not obsolete or render useless anything you've already purchased. On that note, I should mention they are currently running a sale on their web store, and a lot of Aristea products are available at pretty steep discount. Worst case scenario, and all your quote-unquote first edition Aristea stuff ends up being obsoleted, you still have an amazing game. <laughs> it's true. But as I say, I'd be, I'd be very shocked if they did anything that was not consumer-friendly. And so I, for one, am looking forward to the future of Aristea. I still pay attention to what's developing in the Infinity Tabletop Miniatures game, even though I don't really play it. It remains consistently interesting. And again, as a company, uh, their business practices remain consistently consumer-friendly, and for that I applaud them. Finally, Planet Unknown, which is a polyomino tiling game, which is uh, probably more expensive than you should probably pay for it, but it's nonetheless very charming is going to have the traditional model of the new expansion plus reprint. This is several years after another game might have done it. Normally what you do is you release it, you let people have it in hands for somewhere between 1 to 14 days, and then you immediately start crowdfunding the reprint of the expansion. It's been considerably longer than that. But on July 7th on GameFound, they're going to be having a reprint of the deluxe edition of Planet Unknown, along with the new expansion, Supermoon! 
I've not been uniformly impressed with the quote-unquote expansion or deluxe material available for Planet Unknown, but I will definitely be taking a look to see what Supermoon offers. Yeah, there won't be just stretch goals this time, so that's good. So that is the news and why it doesn't matter. This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now on to our feature game. Walker, what is our feature game? Undaunted Battle of Britain. Oh my goodness. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. This was designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. Published by Osprey Games, as have all the other Undaunted games. The first Undaunted game was Normandy in 2019, and it's had new versions every year after that. North Africa the following year, Reinforcements the year after that, which was an expansion to both Normandy and North Africa, and Stalingrad in 2022, which introduced the campaign system. David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin have co-designed a large number of games together, most saliently War Chest in 2018, Resist, and Witchcraft with Salt and Pepper Games with Roger Tankersley, and it is the case that David Thompson, as a solo designer, has done the Valiant Defense series, consisting of Pavlos House, Castle, Itter, Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms, and Lanzarath Ridge. And the, the dynamic duo of Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, although which one's Batman and which one's Robin, I don't know, are also designing the upcoming General Orders World War II by Osprey Games, and the possibly vaporware, but released briefly in Greece, Dire Alliance Horror, published by... <coughs> Blacklist Games, and I use published here very loosely. <laughs> Suspectedly published. Suspectedly published. The claim is that they exist in pallets somewhere in China, but, um, you know, Pixar isn't real. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Undaunted Battle of Britain? Well, at the beginning of each turn, you play a card for initiative, and you hope that you get to throw it in the face of your opponent and mock him openly <laughs> about the terrible choice that he made in his initiative card, because you played... A1, and they wasted their 8. And then you laugh at them, and they blew the game in that one play, and the game is now over. I, I actually hate it more when both players play an 8, and then the tie just goes to whoever won initiative last round. The last game we played, we tied an initiative something like three rounds in a row, and you won them all. It was not pleasant. I did not approve. All right, so what can this system not do? So, Undaunted is a deck building system where you are bringing new units and sometimes that brings them onto the field. 
Not in this case. This is just an overall undaunted summary. Sometimes this brings units onto the field. Sometimes this will just give a unit more hit points. And in doing so, will put more of their cards in your deck and give them a, more of a chance to activate. More of a chance for you to draw them. More of a chance of you to play them. And traditionally, uh, Undaunted's been played on these giant squares. But now Battle of Britain's brought in a, a hexagon system. We all know hexagons are, in fact, the besticons. Now, there's a long history of dogfighting games. And they are usually laden with pitch and yaw and speed and 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 painfulness of yep. like four hour experiences where you hardly move or you've drifted off into nowhere this reduces all that to the essence of of what it is to have a dogfight with many planes like this is just not a one-on-one -on -one thing this is multiple planes and you still get done in sometimes 30 to 45 minutes multiple squadrons even no, you're right. The, the the classic, I think, dynamic of a lot of these so-called dogfighting games, and it's not even just of the era of, you know, World War One, World War II aviation, but even of some sci-fi, quote-unquote, dogfighting games, like your X-Wing, like even Talon sometimes, which is about larger spaceships, is you do a pass, everyone gets to unload all their weaponry, and then you have a whole bunch of turns where you're just waiting for the next pass to happen, right? And... This may or may not be evocative of how air combat actually works. I don't know, and I don't care. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I, there's nothing wrong with with that system. Mm. Well, <laughs> I'm insane. For people that enjoy it. Sure. I'm just saying there is enough of those games out there already. Fair enough. Right? This one boils it down and, and brings it all into a more reasonable time for our day and age. Absolutely. The Undaunted system is one that we have loved since its inception. We were huge fans of Normandy. Uh, North Africa, I was a little less uh, fond of, but still very, very much in favor of. Stalingrad has introduced the campaign system, and people raved about that, but nonetheless, it was still the same on Daunted Bones, which is absolutely not a criticism in any way, shape, or form. And so when Battle of Britain was coming out, I was very, very curious to see how the system was going to change, how the system was going to evolve. And what I find most fascinating is not the areas in which the system has changed, although those are very interesting and we'll get to those in due course. It's more that the existing excellent aspects of the Undaunted system seem to shine in Battle of Britain in completely unexpected and delightful ways. For example, I'll just emphasize two. One of them is the initiative system, which you mentioned before. This is bar none the greatest initiative system that I've ever seen in any game. The only one, the only other initiative system that I think that comes close is Guards of Atlantis 2, and so that's already high praise. And now you're in a position where, because your units can only fire in fixed lines, if you've got a shot lined up, you know that initiative is going to matter a great deal because all the opponent needs to do is get the plane out of dodge and your shot isn't going to be able to uh, come off. So the tension of the initiative system, which was already super high, has been dialed up to 11, in part because of the damage system if you get damaged and you have a unit of that card, uh, of that type in your hand, it goes out so your turn is less good. So that was always some of the driving tension, but now there's additional tension because of lining up shots. The second aspect is having a well-tailored deck. If it is the case that your opponent has not been as careful as you have been in terms of carefully curating the deck, the, the cards that you bring into your deck, your fighters will run rings around your opponent. 
And so sometimes you end up in these situations where your opponent is like, why, why are my planes never where I want them to be? Well, it's because you didn't build your deck properly. You didn't make your deck the finely tuned machine that you needed to make it in terms of satisfying the objectives. And again, the necessity of having a well-calibrated deck in Undaunted has always been there. But now, by virtue of the way planes execute their movements, it is now twice as important, and I absolutely adore it. Yep, and just to get back to the initiative, just so people know how it works, everyone picks a card at the beginning of every turn, you put it face down, and all of the cards are numbered anywhere from 1 to 9, where your most powerful cards are usually 8 or 9, and then your just unit cards can be anywhere from, you know, 3 to 5 to whatever they are. So you sort of have to look at your hand, think what your opponent might play, you know, or maybe you don't care at all, and this is a good chance to get rid of one of your ones because the other three cards in your hand you really need to play. So it's this this tension of which card do I want to waste this turn? Like, do I really need to go first? Do I not? Do I gamble and say, is this just going to be enough because I have the initiative now? So all I have to do is tie so many different choices. And another one that comes up in just Battle of Britain is something that you talked about before is... Sometimes these just end up being flybys, but because there are so many ships, there's usually two to three different battles sort of going on on the, on the map, right? So depending on how you've decided on to how, deploy your how things have, yeah. yeah, washed out. So you might've already done your flyby on one side of the map. So that plane is in the middle of doing its big loop. And so you don't really care about this turn. It's like, well, I have the, the leader of it. It's a nine. I'm not even going to need that this turn. So I'm going to play that for initiative. So, and that never happens in the, in the other games. Cause usually they're always under fire. They're always like a, in a straight line sort of fighting out in almost every card. But I enjoy that part. That's, That's a good point. The fact that it's different. And on top of that, again, this brilliant initiative system is given another dose of tension because if your squadrons are not, quote unquote, in comms, that is to say, if the planes of a squadron are too far apart from each other, suddenly your high value initiative cards are poison pills because if you play them for any purpose, they will add junk cards to your deck. And so you end up in these positions where either by accident or because you took a risk, sometimes it's a calculated risk. I'm going to get my squadron out of comms because I really need to take this shot. But then you're in trouble until you're able to bring them back into formation. And again, it's just the subtle tension, the subtle pressure of trade-off in terms of the initiative play that in turn is represented on the board state. And there's never been this dynamic before of formation in an undaunted system. Formation, again, is one of those things in war games that are typically all about, well, you can't do that, or this is a restriction on how you move. Undaunted gives you the freedom to get your squadrons out of formation, but then that just introduces yet more trade-offs that are sometimes worth it. And so it, you feel you really feel empowered by these limitations rather than just hamstrung. Yeah, so I have a, that's what I mean, like choices. You have so many choices in this game. We've already talked about what card to use for initiative. You have your big command cards where they have bolster or command, and just how you use that one particular card is, is you know, yep. a, a command will let you draw more cards, so you'll get... Like we said, you only get to play three cards in a turn. Playing four cards in a turn is huge. Uh, bolster is going to get more units in, and you might be uh, unit might be about to be taken out because once all the cards, uh, we'll talk about the the wound system, I'm sure, in a moment. And then Battle of Britain, uh, when you activate a card, you usually get to move and then either attack or maneuver, and and making that choice whether you want to attack this turn or be able to turn, you know, attack this this plane that's giving you trouble. Or do I want to maneuver and get behind the plane that is my objective or that is trying to destroy their objectives? And then there is where to attack from. Because we've already talked about how it's, it's, a, it's a pass. 
sometimes. So do you want to move slow so you're going to get multiple attacks, but make it more difficult because you're shooting through clouds or other ships or at a further distance? Or do you want to zoom right up to your target and then shoot them and then you're going to be right past them again because it's this mandatory movement in this game. You can't just sit every turn you're moving at least one space forward. So all of these choices are very interesting in, in Battle for Britain. The sort of classic engagement, I don't know a whole lot about air combat generally, right? I'm a Macross fan. All that I know about air combat comes from Macross. And let me tell you, it was not what we would call photorealistic in terms of its representation of such things. But to my mind, the sort of like distant remove from a couple of movies and maybe a couple of video games is the bombing runs that Luftwaffe were, were performing over Britain and the interceptors that would confront them over the English Channel. So you've got Messerschmitts guarding some Stukas or, or some other bombers, and then you've got some Hurricanes and Spitfires on the uh, RAF trying to confront them over the, the English Channel. And there are a number of scenarios that follow that dynamic, and then there are other scenarios where the bombers not even just have to reach their targets, but have to actually have to bomb their targets specifically. And the trade-offs that you're mentioning in terms of this maneuver suddenly become far more pressing when it's I need to shoot down bombers, but I also need to worry about the fighter cover. And meanwhile, the Germans have to worry about how they're building their deck because it's the bombers that get them the victory points. But if they don't do anything with their fighters, they're not going to have any cover. And suddenly, again, this incredibly simple system with minimal rules overhead is giving you all these trade-offs that a lot of heavily chromed, incredibly stodgy games fail to capture. And again, I don't know. I'm in no position to comment on how evocative this is of any actual event that happened in real life. But the sort of classic interceptor situation that has been represented a lot in fiction and the the, the various trade-offs that, that introduces definitely comes through on the table in a way that I find as a gamer extremely satisfying. Yeah, and every scenario brings in new things to keep it interesting. You have anti-aircraft guns. You have clouds to fly through and get cover. You have balloons that you have to maneuver around. You have land masses where, you know, or boats that, you know, start moving around the map and you have to bomb them. All sorts of very interesting things that, you know, change the game up every time. Let's talk about the combat system very quickly, seeing as some people might not know the Undaunted system very much because it's a very key part of the game because it's linked into the initiative because when you attack another plane unit, unit plane in this instance, uh, and do a damage, uh, if that player has the card that activates that unit in their hand, they're going to lose that card. And if they don't, then they look in their discard. And if it's not there, they have to pull it out of their deck and if it's not there that if they have no cards left of that particular one then you remove the plane right from the board and it's out for good one of the aspects that is sometimes of difficulty for people approaching the undaunted system especially if they do so from a consum mindset or from a, a slightly more chromey outlook in terms of games is that the undaunted system has right from the start been about a series of abstractions Right. I mean, the, 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 the very interface of a squad based tactical war game with a deck building system is already a, a weird kind of abstraction in a marriage that I like on a gameplay level. I don't know how evocative, again, I don't know how evocative it is of, of anything in particular, but at some point I don't really care if it's sufficiently mechanically engaging with the Undaunted system always has been. This, however, comes really to a head in Battle of Britain because if a unit activates, broadly speaking, if it's a fighter plane or a bomber, it always has to move forward at least one hex, as you mentioned. Sometimes that's all it can move if it's slow enough. But if the unit doesn't activate at all, 
it's just going to sit there. And so there are a couple of scenarios and situations where you can end up where a couple of planes are going rings around everywhere else. Again, if their deck is finely tuned, they're going to activate as much as they want or or nearly as much as they want. And some planes just do not move at all. Because And reasons for A, they've been wounded, so you don't have many cards. Or right. B, you're using those cards for initiative. Yes. Or, in the most extreme case, it's the case that they've suffered all the wounds they can, and so there's no possibility of getting any more cards of that uh, plane into your deck. But by the same token, they have not yet been shot down. So they're just going to sit there, stationary, for the rest of the game, unless and until they're shot down. Now, again, this doesn't bother me much, but I've encountered people for whom it bothers them a tremendous deal, and it causes a certain degree of cognitive dissonance. I just want to flag it as an amusing corner case. Lots of times they go to high altitude, hide in the clouds, or or dive down to get away. So I, I, I can easily... Okay. You know... Again, I have no historical preconceptions about air combat. It just seems a little bit weird that for most of the game, you have an undaunted Battle of Britain, these trade-offs like, oh, I don't want to move forward, but they're planes, they're they're moving forward, okay. And then sometimes there's just going to be this Messerschmitt off of the corner that just is stuck there forever. <laughs> True. It's, it's odd that it doesn't bother me when, when you know, the hero clicks, you know, that type of thing in hero clicks bothers me right, to no it, end. Right. right, infinity, the same thing. Yeah, you can devote all your orders to a small number of units, and you've got some mooks in the back that just don't do anything. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's fundamentally a similar dynamic. And in the context of all the other Undaunted games, it made perfect sense. Like, I have no problem understanding that that infantry squad just hunkers down in that building and waits. Yeah, it's been under so much fire that they, they've had enough. Yeah, exactly. They're, you know, they're either, they've either been just told, uh, told to hold that ground or they're just, they don't have the motivation to keep going. On the other hand, if you, uh, batter a plane enough, uh, my understanding is, again, don't really know much about this, but if you shoot at a plane enough, the result is not that the plane will remain stationary in the air. I don't think that's what they do. Mm, I'd have to see some film. Oh, so like you're saying if I shoot out the engine of a plane, it's just going to stay there? Maybe. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't have its engine anymore, so how does it? How would it go anywhere? I would say. Yeah, okay. You're, you're turning me around. The other thing I just want to stress again in terms of the difference between Battle of Britain and the other Undaunted systems is that now facing is crucially important. Before, it didn't matter. They're just, you know, counters can move wherever they like, and it didn't matter from what direction you were firing at a given unit. And now facing is all important for two reasons. Number one, most planes are more vulnerable to fire from the rear. Eminently reasonable. And number two... You, your fighters can only fire directly forward. Bombers, Jazz Rule can only fire directly backward. There's a small number of crude planes that have a, a C-R-E-W-E-D, not C-R-U-D-E. I don't know. Maybe they were crude as well. Uh, that can fire in multiple different directions. And making sure that you can accommodate your opponent's movement as well as your own forced movement to maximize the number of shots on target and to maximize the value of those shots is now more difficult, but in a very pleasant way and just dovetails with all these other trade-offs and choices that you're going to have to make in a game of Undaunted Battle of Britain. I do want to flag that the combat does come down to a dice roll. Oh, yeah. So if you're if you are hating of, of the random dice rolls and this might not be yours, it's not a fixed system of damage, it's... You have a target number, and you need to roll that on, yeah. on D10. So if you're not in so much for the, the randomness, then this might be frustrating for you. Yeah, that has always been a feature, well, a bug, I, I would I would probably say, of all the Undaunted systems. Deck-building games, as a general rule, have a high-level variance baked in. 
in fact, a higher level than most people, I think, tend to appreciate. And the Undaunted systems always have D10-based combat. Now, the sort of characteristic Thompsonian combat resolution mechanism is you get to a target number, you throw some number of D10s, and if any of them meets that number, you do a hit. There's no way to do multiple hits, as a general rule. Now, that's been true of all of them. The previous Undaunted games, though, I think had slightly more variance by virtue of the fact that a 10 would always hit. And so I remember a number of scenarios, particularly in the North Africa context, where people were taking pot shots at vehicles, just trying to get a 10, even though they were shooting from clear across the map and getting it successfully, and that being determinative in a couple of scenarios. At least you can't get that in Battle of Britain. In Battle of Britain, if your target number is 11, you just do not hit at all. That said... In particularly one of the scenarios that we played against each other, Walker, I seem to recall there was one instance where my bomber was shooting at one of the fighters, rolling a single die and needing a 10, and I got the 10, and I think that might have turned the tide of victory. So yes, you do have to accept the fact that you're in for a fair amount of luck-based combat. I would be happier if more dice were thrown over the course of a game. You know, that tends to even out the variance. As I say, it is a minor quibble in an excellent system. Agreed. So to sum up, I have loved all the Undaunted products, and I think this is my favorite. I think Undaunted Battle of Britain is really the one that takes it up to the next level in terms of showing you what the system can do and showing you how much more you can get out of the deck building system and how to the initiative system that were already excellent and really making you appreciate the, the value of the design and the choices that they generate. I am really hoping that Benjamin and Thompson continue to push the system to try to do new and interesting things. I would very much like them to return to sort of a squad-based, almost miniature type game, like a For What Remains 2.0 or something along those lines, using the Undaunted system to, to, to just furnish a basic, <laughs> a, yes. a basic individual combat tactics game. Like a post-apocalyptic type, you know, uh, uh, gang type maybe, game. Maybe, maybe, who knows? Anyway, I very much enjoy it. Uh, unlike the other Battle of Britain, it seems almost there's always something you can do where in the previous ones, I felt that you very, sometimes you really need a combination of cards because in order to take ground, you have to like, you know, there's a certain, you know, take the ground, make sure there's no one in the area and then secure the area. So there's like a combination of cards you need for that. This, that does not happen in the Battle of Britain. There's always seems to be something you can do with the cards every time you have them or you're not, you don't feel that sort of grindy. Maybe you're supposed to. That's what the war was about. Very grindy, but this is a game about it, so maybe not so much. But anyway, <laughs> I will play it any time. The, the map setup seemed grueling to me. I thought there was a lot of instances where... Grueling is harsh. It is harsh, but I mean... It's there, a little I involved. felt as though there was a lot of uh, instances where they could have just had a blue map and added terrain to it and saved a lot of time. But I digress. I'll play any time. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and please do, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us. Thanks again for tuning in. We appreciate your having decided to spend the time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. And now, dear listeners, in honor of His Grace... 
the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent Duke of Diesel, Esquire OBE. We will now be at long last discussing... I don't even know how to say this. How do you say this movie? Fast 10. Is it 10 or is it Fast X? I don't know. Oh, who knows? I, of all the... Like, this series, in terms of naming conventions, was absurd a long time ago. But now I, it's to the point where I see the title and it's like, I don't even know how to say this thing. What did you think of the movie, Walker? Uh, I think it falls in line with much of the others. I, I, there's, I didn't like it, but <laughs> I thought you enjoyed the previous one. I Walker. did okay. the previous ones. I did this okay. one. I did not like okay. at all. Okay. So it, in what there, way does it not fall in line with? The I, it one? just seemed very odd. It was all over the place. It was, and and they have so many characters. Yeah, R. Martin needs to come in, and they'll all <laughs> run. Have a calling. They'll be all. F- afraid of the death that's about to come there were some actors it seems as though that no one got along with them or or they had covid or they were worried about getting covid john cena has his own uh, we're doing mild spoilers right yeah yeah, john cena has his own arc where he interacts with no one pretty much vin diesel has his own arc where he interacts with no one it's true and it's it's just so weird yeah and then the ending there is no ending I know. Did you know that? No. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I just sort of sat there. (laughs) I stared at the screen and I was like, are you kidding me right now? I will. Okay. So I'll issue some specific comments about, I don't know. I think it's Fast 10, maybe. And then more about it as a franchise. All right. I think Brie Larson is wasted. She's a talented actress. She shows up and she's just kind of there. I think that the Jason Momoa character was just badly written and badly executed. They were trying to go for something vaguely akin to the Joker, sort of like menacing and humorous, but I didn't find him humorous or menacing. I will say that Charlize Theron is much, much better than she's been in past Fast movies because she's an amazing action actress. She's been in a whole bunch of great stuff. And in the past, she was just there with weird hair. With weird hair. Now she got had some good action sequences. I felt she was much better in this than the other ones. I used to defend the Fast and Furious series when compared to other big tentpole blockbusters on the grounds that, number one, there were more practical effects, not so much in this one. The practical effects were great, but there's a lot of bad CG. And for me to notice bad CG on my small television, you know, it's pretty bad. And number two, that there was some notion of stakes because they'd killed characters and the characters had stayed dead. No, they're all back. They're all, at, at current count, there are zero major characters that have stayed dead. In the Fast franchise. They've all come back. So it's they're just comic book movies now. There's nothing to separate them from comic book movies as far as I'm concerned. And it's, again, there's not me hating on comic book movies. I do dislike them. But there were at least there was a reason for this franchise to be different. And it was at least slightly different. All that having been said, three Mustangs, 10 out of 10. I have not seen... <laughs> No, definitely not 10. No? I have not seen Aquaman. I have not seen many J- Jason Momoa, Momoa movies. Yeah. But... I, I dislike him very much now because of yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, I don't really blame him. I, bl- I more blame the writers and the directors, but... And the other thing that seems to be like sort of an ongoing thing in some movies, they have this sort of character arc where they have a child. So it's almost like a kid's movie. So children can relate. It's yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, this kid's on an adventure. Would you take your child to this movie? <laughs> so I don't... What are yeah. they doing then? Yeah, I hear you. No, that's a good point. I don't get it. So John Cena drives a third generation Fox body Mustang. As he pulls up to the airport, there's another Mustang in the parking lot. I thought that was choice, probably accidentally, uh, accidental, but definitely choice. And then there's an amazing scene where with one hand, Vin Diesel upturns a fifth generation Mustang GT and causing it to swing around and bash into somebody. 
Yeah. And then in the climactic final chase, John Cena drives a Chevy El Camino. How awesome is that? I'm not a car person, so I can't. It's an El Camino. I will also point out that Mustangs and El Caminos are usually the two cars that I field most often in Gasland. So there you go. That part was great. Other than that, there's I think that so many. I'm thinking back. There's just so many things that don't make any sense. Oh sure. It's like they meet up and they have this race, and then he goes to the sister's house. And then they... <laughs> this uh, this yeah. was my least favorite Fast and the Furious movie since the first one. I I liked the other ones as as pointless spectacle, but the thing there's this trend. In modern and contemporary movies, you don't tell one movie. Every movie is a two-parter. I'm barely willing to cut some slack for Across the Spider-Verse because Across the Spider-Verse was an amazing movie. And I at least knew that it was going to be half of a movie. But here, I'm just like, you could have wrapped it up. Oh, in the Spider-Verse, they definitely ended in the first first movie. That could have stood alone. It didn't happen. No, no, to no, have... no, 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 no. That's into the Spider Verse. The first one, oh. the second one is half a movie. Oh, is it the same thing? They yeah, end? yeah. Okay. It's yeah. it's it ends on a cliffhanger. Oh, I thought. I'm sorry. I thought you knew that. That's all right. I I prefer no that kind of spoiler. I prefer knowing that True. this is I, well, I, this I, is part I, one of I, a two part. I've heard rumors that, that they split it into two. Yeah. They could have easily made this a, a standalone movie. Oh yeah, right. It, they could like when you're willing to throw logic to the wayside, you could have wrapped this up. Ain't no problem. You could have even had Jason Momoa riding off of the sunset. I'll get you next time, Gadget, or whatever, as if you wanted to keep him around. But no, everything's got to be part one of two. Like, so what? what's the next movie going to be called? Fast Fast 10-2? Fast X-2? Fast X-I? Xi? Oh, maybe they'll put three, they'll combine franchises. Triple X. And, <laughs> and Fast and the Furious. They'll throw in an extra X. Sure. Or two. It'll be great. <laughs> Awful. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games presents Masterpiece Theater. We hope to see you again soon next time. And as always, family. Bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.